it's really that problem of how do you first solve it technologically, but then also how do you get a critical mass of users? And that's the challenge that mesh networks are still trying to overcome, but I think cryptocurrency is well on its way to overcoming. Hello and welcome. This is episode 438 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, we'll discuss distributed mesh networking and how Bitcoin and specifically the Lightning Network are being used to solve the zero start problem with the aim of getting this long discussed technology to a useful place a lot faster than we've seen so far. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com and Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the host and is editorially independent. You can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome the other hosts of the show, Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hey there, everybody. And special guest Richard Myers, who works on the Global Mesh Labs Initiative at the Brooklyn-based mesh networking hardware startup, Gotenna. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Richard, while this is your first time being a guest on the show, way back in early 2014, you wrote a piece for me at Let's Talk Bitcoin, one of the earliest pieces that I remember about the need for truly decentralized exchanges. Before we get into sort of the topic at hand, can you give us a little bit of your background and sort of your journey from there to here? Yeah, sure. It's quite an honor to be with you guys. You were the first podcasters I listened to and You've got such familiar voices after all these years. It's fun to be on the other side. Oh, thank you. I'm a software engineer. I've been doing that for quite a few decades now. And yeah, I guess I found out about Bitcoin just the way most people found out about it through some article. And at the time, I was actually in the process of moving to another country. So I became interested in Bitcoin as a way to do remittances, actually. And you know, it wasn't a third world country. It was a first world country. But if you remember back in the day, you know, your bank might have wanted 50 bucks to do a, any size transfer internationally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it probably still does in some parts of the world, but that's not as much of a problem today. But, you know, it was a problem for many years. And I think that was my initial interest. And then also, I mean, I was interested in decentralized technologies even before that. So I hear a lot of people tell the story that they were initially skeptical. Well, I was sort of irrationally unskeptical about Bitcoin. As soon as I heard about it, I thought, this is great. This is going to change the world. So yeah, I guess I really clicked with the idea pretty early, but despite being a software developer, I, I never really dived into the weeds of it. I'm not a cryptographer and I had other projects that I was working on, but at one point I actually kind of fall down this rabbit hole. And I, I remember at one point putting together like just a personal slide deck of like, what can we do with Bitcoin? And one of those, I think it was about 25 slides was decentralized Bitcoin exchange. Cause even in 2014, I could see that was like that was an imminent problem in my mind in 2014, like this is going to be huge, you know, centralized exchanges like Mt. Gox was the big issue is going to be like horrible for the project. So my brother and I actually have been working on that since 2014, you know, a little bit at a time. And in the meantime, there's been other solutions that have come up that's taken some of the urgency away. But, you know, we worked with Manfred from BISC when he got that started. He was starting his project about the same time. So we worked with him a little bit. And I think, like I said, I was working on other projects. You know, family stuff going on. And it was only in 2017 where I really felt like I wanted to go even deeper into this and was inspired, as most people were, I think, when Blockstream launched their satellite project and uh, thinking about decentralized communication. That's another way as a developer, you always look at like where the vulnerabilities and that was another significant vulnerability for the Bitcoin project is the fact that the last mile is always controlled by some centralized ISP. 
of course, you've got Snowden, a lot of stuff going on around that time, you know, that kind of made me think this would be a great way to contribute. And sort of independently, I had seen on Twitter, all of this is sort of mediated by Twitter, which is funny, I had seen Gotenna was this personal mobile mesh radio. And I started corresponding with the CEO and, you know, and she had an interest in decentralized currency. Gotenna has been accepting Bitcoin, I think, since 2015. So they obviously saw there were some ways that these projects could sort of interact. So then, you know, went from emails to working up some ideas written down. And then eventually I uh, quit my job of 16 years and decided to take the plunge and sort of do the Bitcoin all the time with Gotenna. And that's where I'm at now. And really happy to have made the decision. And, and the further you go, the more you realize you don't know, but it's been a, it's been a great journey. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did you make the jump to full-time Bitcoin? I guess it would have been 2018 now, I guess. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's been two years now. Cool. So from very early on, it's obvious that you were interested in sort of these decentralized technologies. Mesh networking isn't really directly related to cryptocurrency, but for enthusiasts, it sort of might as well be, right? It's another meaningful way to decentralize something that's super important and also just by the nature of how the systems work, pretty centralized, right? A lot of central points of failure and a lot of places where pressure can be applied. And if you sort of remove all of those control mechanisms and you have a fully sort of peer-to-peer -peer system as you sort of envision with a mesh networking system, then you get kind of a lot of that stuff back. I remember in the very earliest days when I was, I think my first Bitcoin conference, I met the folks at Open Garden and got really excited about that project. I think that for a lot of us, it kind of captured the imagination about what could be done. You know, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, just real briefly about sort of the work that you were doing. And kind of my first comment off the bat was, when I think about mesh networking, I'm thinking about it like my Wi-Fi router can talk to other people's Wi-Fi routers. Or like we could have a network where your cell phone could access the internet on my Wi-Fi router and then I could make some money off of that as a way to offset that cost and you could create the sort of mesh network of Wi-Fi routers. But that's not at all what you're doing with Gotenna. So kind of a compound question here. Tell us what kind of your vision or the current vision that you're pursuing for mesh networking actually is. How does that work? And then also talk to us about sort of mesh networking in general and where we've started and how we got from here to there. Yeah, great. This is a common question we get. You know, a lot of people, like you said, think about Wi-Fi and like fixed Wi-Fi and maybe bridging homes with Wi-Fi. And that's a kind of mesh network also, but it's one that is more referred to as like a community mesh. And there's a lot of good projects like this one called NYC Mesh, where they're setting up these fixed directional Wi-Fi receivers. And there's even some cryptocurrency projects. And first, in fact, my first project to go Tenna was to review some of these existing mesh projects that were coming out of 2017 and the sort of ICO boom, there was a lot of them. And really only one stood out. There was one called Althea, and it was the only one that hadn't created their own token. And shortly after we published our sort of write-up of all these projects, they also issued their own token. <laughs> so it was sort of nine for nine or something. Those are fixed Wi-Fi, and it's really more like an internet replacement. That's sort of how those projects evolve. And we see them as sort of working with what we're doing, but what we're doing is a mobile mesh network. And that's a little more challenging. And it's also got some advantages. So the challenge is that you're mobile. So obviously you're not going to have the same amount of power. You're working off a battery and it could be lower bandwidth because it isn't a directional mic or a directional antenna. So mobile mesh, you can think of it more like a cell phone replacement or a mobile data replacement. 
So walking around with your mobile phone and sending SMS messages, that's the sort of base case use for a mobile mesh network. And if you buy a Gotenna, Gotenna makes these little battery powered devices. They're like the size of a large cigarette lighter. And they pair with your mobile phone and then you, and they have an app. And when you type in that app, just like you would in your SMS app or your signal app, it will then broadcast that to nearby nodes or to nearby devices. And if the person you're trying to talk to is within range, it's going to, of course, receive the message on that radio. But if they're not, this is where the mesh comes in. It's going to rebroadcast it and it's going to hop from radio to radio to radio until it gets to its final destination. And the range is going to also be a lot larger than a typical Wi-Fi. So your home Wi-Fi, you know, it covers mostly the house. Whereas what we're doing is we're broadcasting on a lower frequency. It's in the ISM band. Like Wi-Fi is also ISM. That just means unlicensed. You can do whatever you want with it. You can open your garage with that frequency, for example, which is great because the original Gotenna product, which was launched, I think around, well, yeah, I forget, but I wasn't around at that point. But the very first was actually a Kickstarter project, and it was on a different frequency. And just, you know, the FCC sort of arbitrarily says you can't multi-hop on that frequency. So ISM has advantages that it's sort of more wide open. And the nice thing about being on a lower frequency of ISM than your sort of 2.4 gigahertz or five gigahertz is that you've got a lot longer range. So what we have on our website is around, we say like four miles would be sort of what our range would be. So that might, you know, if you want to visualize that rather than just your house, it can go across the neighborhood. So like five or six houses or, or you know, three or four blocks, something like that. Yeah. And this would work really well in a city, like somewhere that's densely populated, right? Yeah. And the nice thing about that, you do have some problems in a city because you have like New York, you have buildings and it's going to block the signal a bit, you know, I mean, it can't go through buildings. But there's also more users, right? And doesn't that strengthen the network? Yeah, exactly. So these places that are really built up are also going to have more users. So in a situation where people are actually using mesh technology, you turning density into capacity. So it's actually very favorable in those scenarios. And if you're in the country, then you've got the advantage of range. So you don't have a built environment, but you have range from that. And actually, the longest range that these radios have seen, uh, our sort of range record is about 90 kilometers. And that was from ultralight gliders. So there's a person who made an application. We have an open SDK, so people can build whatever application they want. And somebody built one for ultralights, and they got around 90 kilometers because they were in a place with like no radio interference, and it was just totally line of sight kind of communication. And that's important for building out the network. So if you're building out a community Wi-Fi network, it's pretty slow to build out because you have to go house to house setting up the antennas and pointing them. And, you know, it's a slow process to get that going. I mean, it is good. And we see those networks as complementary with a mobile network. But what we've really optimized for is range because then you need a lower density of people to get a good connected network. One simulation that Ram, our chief scientist, did showed in about a three by three mile area which is like midtown Manhattan, sort of, but without the building, say. If you just have 25 randomly moving people with the range of a Gotenna, you could have a fully connected network. You know, each person connect to two other people. So that's a big difference. If you try to create the same fully connected network with Wi-Fi, you're going to need thousands of people. And with Bluetooth, you're going to need like hundreds of thousands because it's such low range. You mentioned FireChat. I mean, FireChat was a great app. And if you're in the middle of a protest, Bluetooth is great because everybody you want to talk to is nearby. But try to connect a city, range is really critical. 
And the trade-off, of course, is going to be bandwidth there. You have these three things that fight against each other, you know, power, bandwidth, and range. And you know, we're a battery-operated device, so we want to minimize power usage. Uh, we want to maximize range, so bandwidth is what we have to minimize to get those other two. But it's great for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a resource-limited protocol already, maybe not for bandwidth, but the net effect is that it doesn't need a lot of bandwidth. Hopefully that gives the listeners some idea of where these mesh devices fit in. And one other thing that you mentioned, Adam, that made me, made me think about this is that mesh is a lot like cryptocurrency in that it's this technology that people have been talking about since you know, the 80s or the late 80s that's just never happened. You know, Cryptocurrency was dreamed about for a long time and never happened. And it's really that problem of how do you first solve it technologically, but then also how do you get a critical mass of users? And that's the challenge that mesh networks are still trying to overcome. But I think cryptocurrency is well on its way to overcoming. So I want to draw another parallel real quickly between cryptocurrency and mesh networking, which is the kind of permissionless nature of it and the sort of ad hoc nature of it, right? If you're talking about sort of the alternatives to doing text messaging over something more traditional, really what you're talking about is a lot of clients that wind up using infrastructure that's provided by a company whose job it is to largely provide that service. So if we're talking about cell phones and text messages, you're talking about cell phone towers or something similar to that, some type of network like that. What that means is that if those cell phone towers don't work, then even if there are tons and tons of people or in the actual functional part of the network, they can't actually talk to each other at all because that sort of enabling layer is not there. And it's not like someone can just throw up another cell phone tower and provide that without the permission of the underlying company. This is sort of similar to how sort of the traditional financial system works. And if you compare that to how Bitcoin works, right? Bitcoin mining is this sort of game theoretical thing where everyone is incentivized to participate because there are meaningful incentives to participate. But if they don't want to participate or if you want to go away for a while or turn off your tower, so to speak, then it doesn't matter because the network doesn't necessarily need you. It just needs participation that's broad enough across the network. Is that a good analogy to what's happening with mesh networking too? Anybody can sort of drop in and then come back. And effectively what you're doing is you're talking about capacity and perhaps connectivity, you know, but so long as you have this minimum number of participation, then the system works, even if the company that was providing it isn't there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great analogy. I and mean, the internet initially was supposed to be that kind of a network too. It was designed by the military to be redundant. If one connection goes down, it would route through other connections. But that isn't really how our internet works now. You know, if you're a ISP subscriber, it's going to go, like you said, you know, your mobile phone's going to talk to a base station, your home internet's going to talk to some head end. And if those go down, they lose power, or you're just flat out censored, you know, it creates a centralized kill switch, or sort of point of failure for communication. Whereas a mesh network, obviously, like you said, it you're not centrally planning who's going to be doing the routing from person to person. And also, like, you know, like cryptocurrency, there is a cost to that. It would be more efficient to use a centralized tower because you can get a network engineer in there. You can make sure you have one, you know, spaced in such a way that you always have constant coverage. You know, this is a constant theme in cryptocurrency, too. It's always simpler to centralize. But what you lose is redundancy. And that's true for communications, too just like it is for cryptocurrency. I mean, it would be more efficient to use PayPal. It could confirm faster, for example. You wouldn't have issues of latency, perhaps, that you, that you have now in cryptocurrency, but price you pay is redundancy and resiliency. So yeah, I think there's a lot of analogies with that. And the interesting thing, too, is there's like a threshold you have to overcome with communications. If I'm the only one running the radio, 
it's not that useful. That's the sort of zero start problem. But once you pass some threshold, it's like BitTorrent. BitTorrent was, you know, initially it wasn't enough people maybe to get files downloaded in a quick way or Tor network is another example. Initially, it might have been very slow if you used like early Tor network. It was very slow. And I start using it again for other things, you know, a few years ago. And I was like, wow, I'm blown away how fast the Tor network is. And it's just a matter of, you know, that it's gotten onto the exponential part of the networking growth and things pick up. But it's that zero start problem is to get on that growing part of the curve is where the difficulty lies. Absolutely. Well, it seems to me that one of the similarities in the adoption profile for this and for cryptocurrency is that developed environments where there is extensive, efficient, but centralized infrastructure don't really see the immediate benefit of this, and it has a lot of cost of installing. Whereas places that don't have the centralized infrastructure and can leapfrog directly into this and move faster and gain decentralization. And the easiest way to explain it to people in developed nations is to describe scenarios of crisis or societal breakdown or authoritarian government. So whether I'm talking about the introduction of Bitcoin or the introduction of mesh networking, you know, Venezuela or Hong Kong or Iraq or Syria or refugee situations or things like that seem obvious to developed nations people. And there are still quite a few roadblocks in terms of cost and availability for the places that really, really need it. How do you see that conundrum being solved? And does crypto help mesh and mesh helped crypto in that way? That was sort of the initial insight that Daniela Perdomo and our, her other co-founder had, you know, bringing me on to this is they could see the sort of similarities. And one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency that they saw was that it was a protocol that incentivized its own use. So that's where we see some potential crossover is that just like the Bitcoin protocol incentivizes its own use and incentivizes like an ecosystem of miners and node operators and protocol developers and everybody to sort of exist. How do we make that something that also is true for mesh networks? And what you're saying about developing countries is also interesting about the idea of leapfrogging. And it is a conundrum because even those places have the most to gain and probably recognize the value more than they do in the West. If you're in a place like the United States, you really are pretty used to ubiquitous communication. And the idea of having a resilient, redundant system maybe isn't going to be that attractive. But, but as you said, if you're in a place where the power does go out frequently, then this is an easier story. But those people are in an unfortunate situation where they don't have necessarily the time or the money or the technology to develop this stuff. So it does get kind of left to people like us, sort of techno-hobbyists and enthusiasts to build it. But, but ultimately, I think it will see the most value in these other places. One other point that I thought was interesting, when you think about how this can help developing countries, it has another feature that's similar to cryptocurrency in that you're taking responsibility, say, for your own financial system and keeping the value of that system within the system. There's also something like that that can happen for mesh communication. So rather than having the money in the community for communication, leaving that community and going somewhere else to an international provider, for example, who set up your mesh or who set up your radio towers, your like base stations, if you actually had a way you could pay your neighbors to be the base station for you or pay the guy down the street who happens to be running a relay to be the one who carries your traffic down the street. 
then you're actually keeping the value generated by the communication network within that community. I think that's really important in a lot of these places and why they'll probably be more valuable in developing countries or else, like you were saying, Andreas, it'll be more recognized as valuable than it would be in the Western world where it's a kind of de minimis cost that people would earn, then it's maybe not as valuable. Okay, so Richard, I have kind of a two-part question for you here. Usually technology works really well for me, right? <laughs> I live on the West Coast of the United States and, you know, the number of times that I haven't been able to use cell phones because, you know, towers have been out really is pretty minimal and technology in general is pretty stable for me. But I remember during the fires that we had in Northern California a couple of years ago when I was actually evacuated and, you know, it really impacted the town that I was in. And, you know, I was trying to reach family who were outside to figure out where we were going to go since we were evacuated. And none of the cell phone towers worked, right? And so all of this infrastructure that had worked when we didn't necessarily need it, suddenly when everybody needed it, wasn't working at all. And one thing that has always been interesting about these types of technologies is that when you're providing this type of service, not at the centralized level, but in a more decentralized fashion, if more people choose to participate in one of these networks, Rather than seeing the capacity exhausted because it's static capacity, you actually see capacity go up, right? So if there was a reason why people were sort of forced to use alternatives, then that actually isn't a taxing event for the system. It's almost an empowering event for the system. So that's part one. Is that correct? And then part two, which I think this leads nicely into, to use something like Gotenna and to actually start building one of these networks, whether we're talking about in Africa or we're talking about in California during a crisis, what does a person actually need and what is that experience actually like? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the fires. We actually have, I mean, not related to my project, but just Gotenna in general, has sold units sort of to first responders, people who are fighting fires because they have their own problems communicating amongst themselves. And this is actually where Gotenna has probably seen the most uptake is among kind of this idea of a small squad of people who need to keep in touch and share location information. And it's been harder to take that same model and apply it to more of a consumer market because if I'm hiking with my family, I'm going to have my Gotenna turn on and I'm going to have an app and I can send messages and say, hey, we'll be back at base camp in a couple of hours or something. And, you know, this is sort of the model that works. But how do we make that same person say, oh, I'm going to be walking around the city and I'm just going to leave it on my backpack, on, you know, clipped on the back. And I'm going to relay messages for other people. Now, people do that altruistically. They do that, you know, because they're hobbyists. But so far, not really in enough numbers to create a ubiquitous network. So overcoming that problem is a definite motivation for some of the work I'm doing. So I think the second part of your question is just sort of what would it look like, the experience? Yeah, like Gotenna, the product that you guys actually manufacture and sell is a little radio. So like, what kind of form factor is that? Is that like a walkie-talkie size thing? Or like, what's the ask on a person who actually might potentially use something like this? And what is the experience for them? Too bad we're not on video here, but it looks like a large cigarette lighter. You know, it's about that size. So it's pretty small, yeah. Yeah, so it's very small and light. It has a lithium battery in there, and it has a kind of a plastic, a rubberized clip on the top. So a lot of times people will clip it onto the back of their backpack or it's good to have it up a little high. If you're really out hiking, people will actually put them in a tree and create like a breadcrumb trail back to base. So you can do things like that with them. And it's definitely possible to use them that way as well. The experience of actually using it, though, would be that it's pairing with your mobile phone. 
and you're going to load, say, the Gotenna application, which is just like any Signal or any of your communication apps. But the difference will be that you'll have maybe another mode. So in addition to being able to say, I'm going to send a text message to my friend, you can also say, I'm just going to broadcast a text message saying, you know, hey, who's nearby? So that's because it's a radio, you can do that. It actually, in the app, will encrypt it end to end. We're trying to make good privacy something that's a standard that you don't have to think about. So it generates a public key and it does that for the user without them really having to think about it. Just quickly, when you say it's connected to the phone, is it connected via a cable or using Bluetooth or what's sort of the normal route here? It's a Bluetooth paired device, so there's no cable. You actually can use a cable. So if you wanted to hook this up to your computer, you can use a USB cable. We have this development SDK that lets you build apps for iOS, Android, but you can also build Python apps on your PC and talk to the radio. So that's fun. If you wanted to make your own base station, say, to, to do something, maybe a weather monitor or something, you could build it yourself. So yet, from that standpoint, it would be like you know, a set of Bluetooth headphones or something. You just pair it, and then it's going to be like that. Or if you're going to leave it in a tree, it doesn't have to be paired. You can leave it just turned on in relay mode, and then it'll just passively relay. And if you're using it, whether you have it paired or not, and somebody who you don't know sends a message and it picks it up, it will participate sort of at the firmware level at routing their message over your device. So that's how it works right now so that you don't have to enable meshing for other people. It just does that as a standard part of the protocol. And how much does something like this actually cost? Prices vary, I guess. I usually say they're about 80 bucks each and they come in a pair of two. But there's often discounts. I think we're running a 20% discount right now if you go to the website. And that's very affordable. When you look at like what the military spends on mesh radios, it's orders of magnitude more expensive. So you're getting quite a lot of hardware in there. Now, unfortunately, it's still probably out of the reach of people in the developing world who really could use these. But you got to start somewhere. And I think you get a lot of use if you're out hiking or if you're somebody who really wants to be prepared for a disaster. It's pretty good value. Compared to a lot of other sort of preparedness things and a lot of other early technology things, that does strike me as being a remarkably reasonable price because you just need one of these for it to work for you, right? I mean, like you can't create your own network, but if you wanted to participate in a network, the ticket to participate is effectively that, you know, nominal $80 one-time purchase. Yeah. And like I said, you usually buy them in pairs because most of the time people are doing that. But, you know, it could be one for you and one for your wife or, you know, you could give it to a neighbor or something like that. So... That's all you need. And then your mobile phone. So most of the user interface is on your mobile phone. So you can do things like send your location or you can do periodic updates if you're out somewhere and it can update people nearby, you know, where you're at, if that's what you want to do. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro. Did you know that eToro has been providing powerful tools made easy to traders since 2007 and offering cryptocurrency trading since 2013? At eToro, there are no hidden fees and no commissions. Traders love the intelligence they offer, like smart charts on every asset with customizable chart features, and the ability to experiment with a virtual portfolio that's stocked with $100,000 of test funds as soon as you create your account. Get started in minutes by going to eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Please remember that cryptocurrency is volatile and trading it carries risks of financial loss. Please trade responsibly. Do you want a Swiss bank account in your pocket? Do you want to learn about unstoppable code and universal access to basic finance? Discover these topics and an explanation of the philosophy, 
economics, politics, and poetics behind blockchain technology in the Internet of Money, Volume 3, by Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas's most inspiring and thought-provoking talks. Available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited. Order The Internet of Money, Volume 3, on Amazon today. I appreciate you kind of digging into mesh networking as a whole and what you guys are doing at GoTennis specifically there. Again, for me, whenever I think about mesh networking, it typically isn't this sort of radio approach, and it's interesting to think about it like that. So you mentioned that, you know, there's some expense associated with this that sort of precludes it from being broadly adopted in places like Africa or places where the cost of living might be substantially lower and that $80 might feel substantially higher. Talk to me about how you guys are using Bitcoin or how you're aspiring to use Bitcoin and the Lightning Network to sort of solve the zero start problem, as you called it. And can you just quickly tell us what the zero start problem is? Yeah. So the zero start problem is a problem that every new technology that's a network technology will suffer from. So if you were the first person with a telephone, there was nobody to call. And then when there was two people, it actually gained a little value. Bitcoin, again, had that same problem. When Laszlo you know, bought his pizzas, you know, there was no market for Bitcoin. But once you had a single exchange, now you start to build this network of commerce in that case. And the same thing is true for cell phones. You know, until you had somebody to call on the cell phone network, it's not that valuable, but that ramps up very quickly. You get a sort of exponential growth as the network grows. So getting over that zero start is a challenge. And what was the second part of your question? So at the beginning of this, we kind of talked about how many of the early projects turned to kind of an ICO approach to raise money and to create sort of a vested group of enthusiasts who would have a real reason to pick up that technology. And yet here we are all of these years later. And, you know, mesh networking still is not broadly in use. Most of those tokens I don't think have done much of anything. And we're sort of still in this early stage of the technology rollout. So I was reading in one of the papers that you provided about the Lot 49 white paper, which is a proposal for using Bitcoin Lightning as a way to incentivize the delivery of value and data on off-grid multi-hop radio networks. I'm super curious about that. Can you dig into it? Sure. There are a lot of approaches. So obviously, like you said, there are people who made their own token, and that gives you a certain flexibility. It isn't just about financing the project. But when you're starting with a green field of technology, you can do things maybe that you couldn't do within the Bitcoin network, which is already an established protocol. So we did actually spend time looking at other approaches and actually spend a lot of time going down a rabbit hole of this different signature schemes, for example, that might be lower bandwidth. I spent a while looking at something called BLS signatures, if you've ever heard of those, which you can aggregate and save a lot of space. But ultimately, the deciding factor for us was that you needed not just a technology and not just a financial incentive for people to run and exchange messages on the mesh network. But you also needed a community that would build on this technology. And that's where we really saw the value in Lightning, because it does have such a strong developer community. Bitcoin has a strong developer community at the base layer, and Lightning also has a really strong development community and is very compatible with what we want to do. So in a nutshell, what Lot49 is, is doing what some other projects you may have heard of, things like WhatsApp by Yust Jaeger, or this one called Sphinx Sand, and then more recently something called Juggernaut. And all of these are using the Lightning Network, which currently sends payments from A to B to C, and then all those intermediate nodes can collect a small fee 
if the payment is delivered at the other end. All we're doing is saying, not only sending a payment, but sending a small message. So in our case, it'd be like an SMS message. So you're sending the SMS message and along with a lightning payment from A to B to C to D. And when D receives that message, they return proof that was delivered. And that's what flows back through the network. In the lightning sense, that's your pre-image is computed from the message. So that's how those nodes are able to collect their payment, even if they lose touch with the original person who sent it. So in many ways, we're not making a new protocol. We're really literally using Lightning. What Lot49 is, is more a custom communication protocol that's optimized for mesh. So we've made some changes for mesh nodes that communicate. For example, right now there's a 1300 byte onion that's used to route messages over the internet. And that's very important because you lose a lot of privacy, you lose all your privacy if you were to just send messages without any onion routing over the internet. But we're sending over more or less a physical Tor network because it's going from node to node. It's not going through a central ISP who can associate who you're trying to pay. And we're also doing it over a low bandwidth network. So if you were sending 1300 bytes, it may not sound like much in the age of the internet, but we're talking about devices that are talking about a kilobyte a minute. So that's a significant amount of the bandwidth that you would have. I mean, you couldn't even send one a minute. It would just be all onion. <laughs> There'd be no message. So for example, with our lot 49, we take out the onion and we use the native routing of the mesh device, which is optimized for mesh communications. And there's a few other little changes we make like that in order to reduce the bandwidth by chunking up messages and things like that. And the ultimate goal is to really minimize the lightning protocol overhead so that there is more bandwidth available for data for things like sending an SMS. And as bandwidth creeps over the mesh, it can be things like internet protocol. But right now we're really just looking at a messaging protocol, like a SMS style text messaging protocol. So Richard, what's kind of the argument in favor of using something like Lightning for this type of application versus something like just base level Bitcoin? Is it a cost thing? Is it a connectivity thing? Or what are the things that have driven you towards that side of the Bitcoin world? That's a great question, because it would make it a lot simpler and even in some ways lower bandwidth to send a layer one Bitcoin transaction. They can be, you know, around 400 bytes, depending on the number of inputs and outputs. But then what would happen in that case is there's sort of two real downsides there. One is you would have transaction fees, and that would be for every message sent. And since we're looking at really micropayments for these messages, you know, if you imagine A would have to pay B, B and have to send a message to the internet to get it confirmed on the layer one, and then B would send to C and they would have to do the same dance, and then C would go to D. So you see this, it like really multiplies the amount of traffic that has to go from potentially an off-grid network onto the internet. And then there's fees for each of those hops. And then there's latency to get a confirmation, which could be on average 10 minutes. We've seen it go up to a half an hour. So pretty soon it would break down. You wouldn't be able to do it. So Lightning is great because it's optimized. I mean, it really is made for this micropayment regime. And I think it's a little known or, you know, it's not really emphasized, but because the value is locked between the nodes, every time you make a payment, you don't have to record it with the internet. That's really your fallback. You can fall back to layer one if the communication fails or if one of the nodes is dropping out. But otherwise, the payment from A to B and B to C and C to D, all that can happen without actually touching the internet, essentially. So that's really what drove us to Lightning. It fit 
not just from a speed standpoint. So also there's no TX fees. There's only the fees for the routing. So there's no layer one TX fees. There's only the much lower lightning fees. And the latency, of course, is also lower. There's sort of all of the factors that people pointed to for your quintessential pay for a cup of coffee are really multiplied in this case because we're doing much smaller payments, we're doing much quicker payments, and we're doing many more payments. If you imagine you're you know, having a text conversation, that's like a lot of back and forth that you would need. So all of the advantages of Lightning are even more important for this. That's really what drove us there. So looking at kind of the Bitcoin mesh networking connection from a different way, you know, I talked about kind of the disaster scenario in the developed world, right? There's another scenario, too, that kind of prominently comes to mind. Stephanie, I'm thinking about you and Porkfest. <laughs> <laughs> Porkfest is a disaster scenario? Yeah, that's maybe <laughs> accurate now. <laughs> okay, okay. So I wasn't saying that necessarily. I remember years ago, I don't know if you still go to Porkfest. No, I haven't gone in a few years and I'm not going this year. And probably not going back ever again. <laughs> well, so let's just take the generic idea of sort of like an off-the-grid camping type of scenario. I remember one year you went, and I think it was Charlie Shrem who paid to bring in an internet connection that was then broadcast out sort of to everybody. But again, it's like this centralized service that everybody's sort of drawing off from. So for anybody who doesn't know the background, there's a camping festival in remote regions of northern New Hampshire. And just to give you an idea of how remote it is, People who are flying in have to fly into basically Logan Airport in Boston and drive for five hours north to get there. <laughs> Heck of a commitment. And along the way up at the top, you know, you're losing cell phone reception. And once these few maybe cell towers in the area get overloaded with a massive influx of people, as there used to be a lot of people who went, some years there were like 2,000 people. There's other festivals out in the woods in New Hampshire and Vermont where several thousand people go. And, you know, the network gets overloaded. As the week or the weekend progresses, it's harder to make phone calls and receive text messages. Sometimes you receive them a couple hours delayed and then you can't meet up with your friend anymore. So communications can be a big problem and internet access in general is a big problem up there. I remember in the earlier years, you know, when you were still attending, there was kind of this tension between people who wanted to pay with silver. Yes. And like sort of this real money thing. Yeah, this was a community that was really interested in alternative forms of cryptocurrency. And actually, I think this is where I first heard about the idea of mesh networking it was this particular festival, because back in the early 10s, I guess, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, people had been buying stuff like food at the festival with silver. And even I think people brought little chips of gold and they were getting sort of like a tab going with certain yeah. restaurants that would spring up because they really wanted to use alternative kind of currencies to pay for their stuff. And you have to buy food up there and there's not many restaurants. So people kind of bring their own and then they sell it. But as Bitcoin started coming out, people wanted to pay with Bitcoin. And this became sort of a problem because if you don't have reliable Internet access, it's difficult to get Bitcoin transactions to go through. Yeah, that's a great example of where something like this could work. And not only that, like you were mentioning the restaurants. Just like there might be pop-up restaurants, you could imagine somebody coming with a little satellite uplink. And it may be kind of expensive. Not everybody's going to want to have one of those. But if they can resell their bandwidth to other people who want to confirm their payment or they want to send a message outside of the festival, you know, if you're the gateway where everybody's going through, you're going to actually gain a little bit of Bitcoin for each one. And also kind of prevents people from just using it unnecessarily. You're not going to be sending cat pictures if you've got a paper bite. So people would use it really when they really need to use it. 
What about security? Because I remember another problem during this festival was that people would set up like fake Wi-Fi nodes and, you know, they were stealing people's information and passwords and stuff. Yeah, I mean, probably not that problem. But if you really wanted to look at sort of an adversarial scenario, you could imagine if you're the one guy who's got the satellite uplink and you were the nefarious thinker, you could do what they call an eclipse attack on the network. I mean, this isn't easy to do. This is probably something that average Joe couldn't pull off. But you could sort of give a wrong blockchain to just the people who are getting the blockchain information through you. You're sort of their only source of truth as to the state of the blockchain. Now, what makes that really hard is they would also have to mine blocks at a certain difficulty, even if it isn't the full difficulty. So that would be pretty difficult. But again, that's a threat that Bitcoin people talk about a lot is that you could be isolated from the honest network. That's actually where I wanted to go with this is when you're talking about a system like Bitcoin, what it's doing, right, is it's pushing things up to this global layer of truth, right? This sort of international layer of truth that doesn't have any particular geography. But in a situation like that, basically everybody who's doing business, they're all in the same place. And so it seems like you want to have that connection to the outside world. But as you said, like, it's a lot of data if you're literally pushing everything that's happening locally up there and then having to come back from that, right, in order to get a full round trip. So talk to me about how mesh networking can interact with these types of systems, whether it's at layer one Bitcoin or like lightning layer to sort of allow for local transactions to happen in a way that still references that global truth layer, but doesn't necessarily rely on it to be functional at all. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. And where lightning is really helping us here is those slow and potentially costly interactions with the main chain only happen when you're opening or closing a channel. So if you imagine your Porkfest scenario and you're using Lightning, then you might just have to only do two transactions to join the payment network because you're going to just go to your bacon weave guy and you maybe some other guy who sells food and open a channel with them, which is going to generate two on-chain transactions. And maybe that goes up through the satellite, takes 10 or 15 or 20 minutes to get confirmed and comes back. But then after that point, your value is locked with them. And it's like you've opened a tab, like you were mentioning, Stephanie, you've opened a tab with the silver. And now every time you do a payment, that's not leaving your campground. That's just going to circulate between everybody else who's connected with various channels. Maybe the next guy you got to pay has a connection to the guy with the bacon weave, or maybe two or three hops with the guy with the bacon weave. So as long as all your payments are in this sort of physically local area, then you know the communication is local. I understand what you were saying, that if everybody was trying to make a payment over like layer one, you could very easily get into a situation where that data never reaches the network or it takes a long time and every payment had to go back up through that satellite or through those overloaded cell phone towers, then that just wouldn't work. And this isn't just maybe a campground scenario. This could also be if you're in a remote village in some you know, part of the world where the mobile carriers don't want to build out infrastructure. Maybe you're mostly talking to people in your own village or in the community nearby, farmers or whoever it happens to be. And occasionally you might need to communicate with a relative in the city. And maybe that goes through a more expensive gateway to get there. But it's now incentivizing people to provide that gateway and not relying on some external force to come in and put it in. So that's really the vision I have. And I think that we have at Gotenna of how we can empower this last mile communities to be connected and to take responsibility for their own connectivity, or it gives them a way to be responsible for their own connectivity. Yeah, maybe this could go up into space eventually, <laughs> when more people start living up there. 
Well, you know, it's funny you say that. Obviously, there's the BlockSat. So Blockstream has a satellite, and they actually have a messaging system over the satellite. And we've done some work with them to show that you can send a message, again, with Lightning. This is not a new idea we've had. Other people have had this. So you can send a message and pay for it with Lightning to their Blockstream satellite service. It'll come up to the satellite, come down anywhere in the world, and then you can receive it with a satellite receiver and then rebroadcast that over the mesh network. So maybe your village has one BlockSat receiver and you can get a message from anywhere in the world and have it then relayed over this local mesh network. So you can have these sort of hierarchies and it could go even one step further. There are people putting up these low earth orbit satellites. I think there's a lot of them. I think Musk is even trying to do it. But there's one right now where you could use a very low power radio, maybe even a GoTenna at some point to reach that satellite in that period where it's flying over you. And in that way, get data both in and out of a very remote place. So the future is very bright when it comes to communication technology. All right, so Richard, we're almost out of time here. Before we go, though, I really want to understand what are the challenges to get us from the current state of the technology and the current state of the deployment to a place where it's actually really useful in real life. You know, and I hear that on the developed world side, like the challenge there is that the infrastructure that we have isn't perfect and it's not super resilient, but it works the vast majority of the time. And on the sort of underdeveloped side or less developed side, the cost of building something like this from the ground up might make more sense than building like cell tower systems or something like that, but it still is too expensive. So is that an accurate assessment of kind of the challenges that stand in both of those sides? What did I miss? And what needs to change? Does the cost of these devices just need to come down? Do we need to have more disasters that force people to think about, you know, resiliency and redundancy within these networks in a different way? Or kind of what's your, not necessarily vision, but what's your feeling for what needs to happen for this to really get to a useful and broadly deployed place? I can only really tell you sort of what I see as a good strategy to overcome those challenges. And it's in the Western world, the way I sort of look at it strategically is that so for instance, my project is to put this into a mobile phone so that you could do this Lot49 protocol with the Lightning payments from a mobile phone and just a good way to shake it out and make sure that we've overcome sort of the technology part. And who's going to use that and how do you sort of bootstrap that in the Western world? I think it's really going to be a core of hobbyists. It's going to be people like Bitcoiners. It's going to be people who see the value of having this technology both for their Lightning payments, but also to have a resilient kind of communication network. and. It doesn't just have to be text messages. You know, these gateways and these relay mesh devices can also be relaying blockchain information. So like block headers, for instance, are pretty small. So I could see a demand among people who are already sort of bought into the Bitcoin story becoming the people who seed the network and are the early adopters. And then I think the next wave is going to be people maybe disaster minded or, you know, after a hurricane, they might see the value of having this network in their community and buy one. And we've seen that already happening in places like New York after Hurricane Sandy. That was the original impetus for GoTennis. So I think every time you have a disaster and you have this solution and people see that it has value, you can start to grow the network slowly that way. Now in the developing world, I think these lessons and these technologies that we put together can be adapted in those places. And everything we're building at Global Mesh Labs is open source. I mean, we're funded by GoTennis but nothing we make is proprietary. Everything we do is open source. And if a homegrown mesh radio develops in some country, then they can adapt this protocol to what they're doing. 
maybe that's a way to get a device into a place that doesn't necessarily need all the polish of a first world device, but wants to sort of bootstrap their own network. Or maybe they just build off of a different kind of mesh instead of a mesh of what we're doing with these ISM radios. Maybe they can build a mesh of the Wi-Fi that's already built into their phone. Or, you know, maybe they just find a way to pirate the LTE frequencies their phone can already talk. I mean, people can get pretty creative to make it affordable in those places. But first, you just need the technology to exist and then let people run wild with it in their own environment. That's sort of my vision of how this can happen, how this can get bootstrapped. I mean, the technology has to first be proven in the West, but then I think it can very easily be adapted in places based on the local situation. For people who are interested in sort of getting involved with the open source portion of the project, what are the relevant details? Where should they be going? You know, are there any papers out there you think people should be reading or technologies beyond Gotenna that they should be paying attention to to stay up to date on this space? One pointer I would give people is if you go to globalmeshlabs.org, we usually have posted our white paper, which again is a little out of date, but there's also a link to our Telegram group from there and our GitHub. So as we do projects, we usually will post the GitHub there. We also have a lot of articles on the GoTenna blog called In the Mesh. So you can usually find a reference there to the kind of up-to-date things that we're doing. And also, I mean, we're really looking for developers. So, I mean, if somebody wants to reach out to me and they're interested in this, I'm Ari Myers underscore R-E-M-Y-E-R-S underscore on Twitter. I really would love anybody who wants to go deeper on this, either as a tester or somebody who just wants to, you know, contribute development time, anything like that. We would really love to work with you. And if you're interested in a different kind of hardware, there's other systems like LoRa, which is pretty popular. We'd love to work with somebody on that and adapt this stuff so that we can really create a standard for value and incentivization amongst mesh networks of any kind. One plug I'll put in, we just posted an article today on inthemesh.com about using amateur radio. So we had somebody actually send the first part of a lightning negotiation from Michigan to California. And we'd like to get somebody to communicate on the other end so we could do a full sort of protocol exchange across the country and looking for volunteers to help us with that too. And that's a wrap on episode 438 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on Coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode was sponsored by eToro.com. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Richard Myers, and Adam B. Levine, with music by Jared Rubens from Ether and Gertie Beats. This episode was edited by Jonas. We'll have all of the links discussed in the show notes. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. We'll see you then.